Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Wealth Chat by Kleinwood Ambrose. My name is Fahad Kamal and I am the Chief Investment Officer. Today we are talking all things residential property, where to buy, where to sell, how to borrow. It's all up for discussion today with our two eminent guests. The first being Lucien Cook, Head of Residential Research at Savills. Lucien joined Savills in 1993 after completing a degree at the University of Cambridge. He is now one of the most quoted commentators on the UK housing market, frequently appearing on radio and television, and is very kind enough to join us on today's Wealth Chat. Similarly, Alex Bunyan, our very own superstar of the credit world within Clyward Hambras, instrumental in our lending decisions, particularly when it comes to mortgages. It's a pleasure to have both of my guests with us today. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you, Fahad. It's great to be here. So, Lucien, we are coming into the very uh, last dying days of, of 2020. What a year it's been. Probably more movement in the residential real estate market across the UK this year than you've seen in the previous 10. Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been a quite phenomenal year. I think the, sort of the pace of change in the prime housing markets, well, the whole of the UK housing market, really. I don't think we've seen anything like it quite since 2007, albeit for, for really different reasons. We all sat there at the depths of the first lockdown, sort of questioning how much transactional activity that we would see in the market. And indeed, a lot of us were talking about to what extent we, we thought prices would fall. And yet we have had this remarkable surge in activity as a result of lockdown, as people have reassessed their work-life balance and their property needs. And it looks like we're going to end the year with positive house price growth. The first time, um, I think, in the modern day uh, that we've had a recessionary environment, yet we've had appreciation in terms of real estate, uh, residential real estate values. Can you sort of walk us through exactly sort of what has been driving that? Obviously, given the where we were in March, April and May, it's been an absolute sea change in where we would expect it to end the year. Partly it's driven by obviously people's desires to have bigger places in the country because they don't need to commute. But surely something must have dramatically changed in the long-term outlook that people have for their for their housing needs and their desires. Yeah, so I think there's a few things there. I mean, one... Um, the experience of COVID has meant people have reassessed their work-life balance. And it's also changed, even for the wealthiest in society, their working patterns. Um, and, and that has meant that they've sort of reassessed what they want from a property um, and where indeed they want to live. Now, some of the very, very wealthy people, of course, can afford to have a very expensive property in the heart of central London. And actually, their next discretionary purchase is going to be their country residence. And I think, you know, that market, that that top end of the country market has been a sleeping giant for quite a long time. So some of these behavioural changes came at a point that it was looking relatively good value. And then I suppose you've got the next tier of wealth below that, where you have got people with a real housing need. So they're often looking for their main residence. They've probably stayed within the London market and moved up and down the wealth corridors uh, through their period of ownership. And some of them have said, well, look, I don't need to be quite as close to my office in London going forward. Um, I do quite like the idea of living more in the countryside, access to good schools, all of those things being important. And, and my, my work-life balance what that means for my family has become increasingly important. I might be spending three days a week in the office going forward rather than five or six. 
you know, that's facilitated their move. And of course, because they're, they're relatively affluent, they've got a large chunk of housing wealth behind them. They've been able to take advantage and act upon some of those changes. So they seem to put some quantitative, you know, sort of rigor behind behind some of this analysis. In terms of where we began the year, what kind of returns had the London housing market versus the rural housing market given us over a period of, let's say, five years? And then when we began this year, where did it fall and what's the bounce back looked like? And, you know, it did give us a sense for some of our clients who obviously have um, discretionary wealth that they put to work across a range of asset classes and how has real estate fared within that wider pantheon? Yeah, so if we start with with central London, that prime central London market, which is one that's sort of had an assault of taxation since 2014, and then subsequently has been affected by all of the political uncertainty with the fallout from Brexit, the general election at the back end of last year, that came into the pandemic with prices 20% below where they were in sterling terms. So that market was just beginning to look like good value. That meant that at the beginning of the year, we thought the market was set for recovery. And indeed, we saw some quarterly growth, not very much, but we saw some quarterly growth in the first quarter of the year on what proved to be a relatively short Live Boris Bounce. Now, because prices were looking good value anyway, and because they'd had that quite long period of price adjustment, no significant fall in prices within that market um, in the wake of the pandemic. But equally, because you haven't necessarily had that number of needs-based buyers, and because of international travel restrictions, you haven't necessarily seen the overseas buyers come into the market when it looks good value, neither have you had um, significant price appreciation. So I think that central London market right now looks really interesting. It looks very good value, much as it did at, um, at the beginning of the year. And I think as we go into 2021, and we start to see the vaccine take effect, we start to see travel restrictions ease, we start to see central London regain its buzz, a bit more footfall on the streets, a lot of the amenities opening, then I think you probably have got a platform for recovery in that market. By contrast, the domestic markets of London, so classically, if you think of that wealth corridor that starts in Fulham and ends in Wimbledon and picks up your Claphams and your Batterseas, it might sort of jump out across to Chiswick on its way in doing that. We had seen moderate price growth over that period, albeit that prices had come off a little bit since um, since 2016, when we had the uncertainty uh, of the EU referendum. Now, that market has had those needs-based buyers moving further out often in their requirement for more space. And then you have, if you like, the markets beyond London. And there, what we'd seen for quite a prolonged period was the town markets. So particularly if you think about your Uber towns. So those are the ones which have that combination of good quality housing stock, good schools, good accessibility to London, and they have the amenities to go with it. So you think your Seven Oaks or your St Albans or your Cambridges or your North Oxfords, um, or your Winchesters or your Beaconsfields. It's those kind of markets. Bath, if you were to go to the southwest, Harrogate and York, if you go to the north and, and perhaps parts of Cheshire. If you go into those um, markets, the urban markets, the town markets, for quite a prolonged period have performed better than the countryside properties. So the countryside properties, there was a bit of feeling coming into this that they'd gone out of fashion. And of course, what you've seen now is that some of that migration out of London as people want more space, both inside and outside the home, 
They're not going to be traveling to London quite so often. So it's a, it's a more achievable and more comfortable way of life um, when they do it. But equally, that requirement for outspace has reignited the country markets. So for very different reasons for central London, the pandemic also came at a time when particularly that prime country house market was looking pretty good value. It hadn't recovered some of the losses since 2007, even if you went back to. So so I think you know it's been a combination of change in attitude and people just taking advantage of where pricing was. Um, and that, that's reignited the market. Just to put it into context, if you look at activity in that market, let's just take a benchmark of a million pounds. Um, activity in that market above a million pounds between the 1st of June this year and the end of November was a full 80% higher than it was in the same period last year. Now in London, it was 40% higher. And in the country, it's been a bit higher than that, that 80% figure, but overall 80% um, increase in, in sales which are being agreed. You know, that's the thing that none of us could have envisaged in the depths of lockdown. We never really understood that there would be that scale of behavioural change, which is a catalyst for the market. I think there's two points there, actually, just to add to what Lucien said. And I totally agree with it. And I think we can back that up with the demand that we've been seeing from our client base is firstly, there was a lot of pent-up demand before the new year. There was lots of money waiting to be invested. And that demand didn't go away. It stayed there. It might have been delayed for three or four months, but it came back very, very strongly in the summer months and beyond. We've seen that. We've also seen a lot of our clients looking for outdoor space, looking for, I wouldn't say so much country estates, but certainly something outside of the city where they've got outdoor living. Uh, and we've, we've seen that more and more. So, Alex, uh, walk us through uh, some of that in, in terms of when, you know, when we have a client who says, you know what, I have a flat in London where I've been living in for a long time, but I am much more keen getting a much bigger place in the countryside, given the fact that I'm only going to be commuting twice a week from here on out. How do we help them? What do we do? What are we looking for? Particularly for some of our clients who don't have the traditional income, you know, that, that sort of the high street bank is looking for in terms of mortgages. How do we assess and what do we do to help? Well, a lot of the time what we're seeing now is, is clients moving back towards two property living. So where they might have been living more often than not in the city, they're probably now using that property as a peer to tear, uh, using it probably several days a week and then going back into more country living for the weekend. We're seeing that being more of a focus. So not just having one property, but retaining two and making it work for the family and also for, for, for the work-life balance as well. So we're seeing those requests coming through strongly, whereas we could have seen clients looking at uh, principal private residents in London. They may be using those sparingly as peer to tears. They might even be looking to, to let them out. So we can look at all of those scenarios. And we see that more and more from an international bias as well, where clients are looking to buy in London as a safe harbour and, and use them as, as peer to tears. So uh, we, we're seeing it's a very, very multi-layered, very complex market that we see uh, in the London and South East. Our client base certainly projects that. It, it's very diverse. The demography of the client base fits very well with the London and outer London market. So whether it's for buy-to-let or whether it's for own occupation, uh, whether it's a, a, a lifetime house or whether it's just a, a peer-to-tear or, or buy-to-let, we're seeing all of those areas becoming very favourable. Even the buy-to-let market we're seeing very, very strong at the moment as well. And I don't know what, what Lucien thinks about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think just on that buy-to-let piece, the fact that we look like we are set for a much longer period of low interest rates, you know, clearly has meant that some of those buy-to-let investors, some of the pressure has been off. 
um, and some of them who were pretty weighed down by taxation and regulation have just seen some of those pressures ease and some of them will have sensed a, an opportunity for investment. I thought Alex's comments actually were really interesting about that dynamic about keeping a place in London and then buying something else out in the country as the main family base. We've definitely seen some of that. And what that has meant is that buyers have been able to look to slightly different areas than they might have done previously. So whilst we know that you know the white heat of that top end of the housing market has been in the commuter zone, because people have retained a place in London, they're going to commute less often. It's also pushed demand into the lifestyle relocation markets and the markets at the edges of the commuter zone. So some places that will have done incredibly well in terms of transactional growth are going to be Cotswolds, you know, which is often you know, that classic London relocation market. South Oxfordshire has done um, particularly well, um, but also some of the complete relocation markets. So somewhere like the South Hams in Devon, um, has seen a very significant surge um, in activity, as have some of the markets in Cornwall. So it, it, it's been quite multifaceted. And, and I think that reflects the, the different perspective people have had on what the pandemic has meant for their life um, going forward. So, Lucien, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the one question that I think that we get more than, than any other is, is to, you know, pulling out our crystal ball is, well, where should we buy now? We understand all of these dynamics. It all makes sense. But if London comes back to normal, surely that's going to mean a surge in, in prices in central London. Alternatively, if this pandemic has permanent effects in terms of people moving to the countryside, etc., is this a good time to still get in? How do you view that? If you had, if you had a million pounds right now to deploy, where would you deploy it? Okay, so I mean, I think there's two things, isn't there? Um, If you are just looking at pure potential for capital gain, then I think central London was poised for recovery prior to the pandemic. I think that has been put on hold. It looks very good value, uh, whether you're looking in sterling terms or indeed in overseas currency. Um, So I definitely think that there are opportunities there. If you are looking at something which is more exclusively for your own use, um, and you've got the itch to move to move out of London, then I think it's all about accessible countryside. You know, I think I think you're going to find that the villages within five miles of the train stations of some of those Uber towns are going to be incredibly popular. Uh, and I think you will, you know, that rediscovery of village and rural living with the accessibility to get into a town where you've got the high street offering, you know, all of the social amenities that you want, but you can also get into work when you need to pretty quickly is probably going to be pretty compelling. So effectively, one should obviously take into account whether they are a, a financial buyer or a buyer, you know, for their own personal needs and therefore make a decision based on that. Yeah, and equally, you know, let's not just forget here, when you're talking about this end of the market, the individual attributes of a property, the specifics of the property, you know, just that ability to, when you drive down the drive to look at it, suddenly it's the one that sets your pulses racing. You shouldn't underestimate that because, you know, if you're going to buy a property at, 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 at this end of the market, it's got to be one that you love, you know, and sometimes you will find that the heart will override the head. And you will simply stumble across the property that you think, you know, this is the one. And, and for many people, quite rightly, that will dictate where they put their money. Um, so, yeah, you know, so, you know, that's the thing that makes property so fascinating, isn't it? So, Alex, assuming that, 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 we, um, uh, that we take Lucien's word for it and we, we find a property that sets our pulses racing, uh, let's say it's in central London, it costs £2 million and there's a client. And I know many of ours fit this bill who, who happen to be very asset rich but but they don't fall within the traditional you know they're not income generative they're they may be older etc how do we help how can we solve those problems 
How can we get them that that property? That pretty much accommodates a lot of the uh, the client base that we see, who probably don't have the traditional sources of income. So as a private bank, we look very diversely at the underwriting criteria. So clients who don't have traditional sources of income aren't really a concern to us. The first two questions I would ask always is, can a client service the debt? How are they going to repay the debt? And the property, actually, and we have this conversation actually quite a lot between the commercial side of the business and the risk side of the business is, uh, okay, you know, we'll take the property and we'll give a, 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 an LTV. You hear that all the time. We'll give an LTV against it. But ultimately, it's the, the client that drives the desire to lend. Uh, so we, we will look at clients in a number of ways to assess their ability uh, to service and repay. Uh, and income is just one of those areas, whether they've got financial assets where they've got uh, sporadic income. Uh, lots of our clients just don't have traditional income. They rely on income generated or, or asset disposal. Uh, and we will look at all of those when, when putting a, a facility together. So from a high street perspective, if a client comes to us looking for a traditional 25-year amortizing mortgage, it's not the client that we look to. Traditionally, we're looking at five to 10-year mortgages, interest only in a lot of the uh, occasions because clients want to sort of minimise their repayments because they know at a certain point in time uh, they'll have access to liquidity to, to, to repay us back. So, so we, we look at it in a completely different way. And I think that's one of the things that separates this end of the market, isn't it? You know, often totally. you will find that you've got discretionary use of debt for strategic reasons, whereas for the bulk of the UK housing market, um, you know, servicing that debt is is going to be the number one priority when somebody looks at it and works out what is affordable and what will be affordable going forward. And repayment of that debt for both the borrower and for the bank would have been, you know, the primary um, conversation. So, I mean, they, they, and I think that's one of the reasons, actually, whilst the top end of the market has led, if you like, the recovery in activity. Um, but even when you get into the mainstream, it's been the people with stable incomes and stable jobs um, who probably put off a decision to trade up the market post-EU referendum, possibly even a bit before that, who've been the ones who've driven the activity this year. I mean, at the top end of the market, if somebody asked me a few years ago uh, what, what I did for a living, and I said, well, I lend money to people that don't need to borrow it. <laughs> I like that. Because uh, they, they choose to borrow. They don't need to borrow. It, it actually works for them in a number of reasons. There might be structural uh, aspects to it. Uh, but there might just be a desire to, to take what is very, very cheap borrowing at the moment. Let's be honest, base rates down at 0.1%. There's even talking about going to zero. So um, it's a very, very cheap way of, of accessing liquidity. And uh, why spend your own money when you can spend somebody else's? At that top end of the market, and we are looking at sort of super prime properties at 15 million plus, uh, a lot of the clients that we do business with to tend to choose to borrow rather than need to borrow. I guess my next my next question really is, uh, Lucien, what are the big sort of risks that we see coming forward? Obviously, one I would imagine is the fact that the stamp duty holiday will end come next spring. Um, what else? What are the big pitfalls? What are the big risks that some of our clients who are considering deploying large sums of capital in the UK real estate market right now, uh, rural or, or urban, what should they be looking out for? Yeah, I mean, I'm amazed we've got this far without talking about stamp duty. I mean, it, it seems to me that it's both a national and international um, obsession, isn't it? Um, and clearly, I think what you will see is that overriding desire uh, of anyone subject to UK tax to, to take advantage of a stamp duty holiday will play out over the period of the next three to four months. 
and you will see a significant surge in transactional activity in the run up to the end of the stamp duty holiday. And I think, you know, there, there will be pressure on the Chancellor to extend that holiday. Whether or not he does, we just don't know. No one should rely on that. But I think, you know, there is a real risk that some people who have been banking on taking advantage of it will risk missing out simply because the volume of business, which needs to be processed by the mortgage providers and by the conveyancing um, solicitors. I suppose the other thing then is, is that sort of comes at a time when you expect unemployment to be pretty high. And I think what you'll see next year is a year of, of three parts in most parts of the UK housing market, actually. Um, this rush of activity in the first quarter, a real lull in activity thereafter, because some of the economic pressures which we've seen um, would just create a bit of an economic hangover to affect the housing market at that point. And then I think it is really dependent upon the pace at which the vaccine programme gathers momentum to allow people's lives to return to whatever is or, or to get to whatever is the new normal, you know, and that that is is critical, I suppose, in terms of people assessing how much their work life balance is going to change. It's critical to central London because it's it's that which unlocks some of that international travel and allows central London to regain its buzz going forward. But when when a market of central London comes back, I suspect it will gather pace quite quickly. Interestingly, the lull may give some buyers an opportunity to buy. Just adding to what Lucian says, when the domestic market quietens down a little bit, we will naturally see the international investors taking an interest, whether it be that, I mean, and I think you touched on it earlier, Stern is still very attractive for some of our international clients to use as a play to come in and buy in the UK market. Uh, and they do see it uh, a lot of the time as a safe harbour, a very, very attractive, but a very safe place to put the, their wealth in assets, in real estate assets. Uh, so when the domestic market's a little bit quiet, we tend to see our international clients uh, being more active in that market. So there might be a lull, and I, I would expect there to be a lull, and I totally agree with what Lucy's saying, but it's not going to be a massive lull that sees the market completely dampened down. I've not seen that. And certainly that this year has been an eye opener. It did quiet down for a little bit. But uh, to be honest with you, uh, we've seen it very active in the run up to the end of this year. And we certainly the indications are that the next six months, regardless of where we are with the COVID situation, uh, it still remains to be to be active. And I'd also take Lucien's point about the market being squeezed into that first three months. We're already seeing the signs that uh, the land registry are getting very, very uh, log jammed and getting approvals. Uh, if anyone wants to credit to assist by uh, a property, which most, most people do, they're finding that they might get credit approvals, but they're finding that that conveyancing process lengthening out uh, and becoming a lot longer uh, uh, as a result. Yeah, and uh, you know, you can see that. We took some data from the data provider 20CI at the back end of last week, and that shows that what we would refer to as the under-offer book, so the, the property where the, a sale has been agreed, but they're yet to hit exchange, and of course, we're looking at exchange then completion to hit that stamp duty deadline. You know, that is over 550,000 properties across the UK as a whole. And at the top end of the market, above a million levels are double where they were this time last year. So, you know, there, I think there are going to be real pressures in terms of people's ability to, to operate within that stamp duty deadline. Actually, and if you think about it from a stamp duty perspective, when you get to the end of the market that we're talking about, you are talking about a saving of £15,000. 
um, which is a relatively small proportion of the purchase price. And so we've done some research about how concerned people are about meeting that stamp duty holiday. Um, and yes, um, 60, you know, 60% of the market are concerned about their ability to meet it, but only 25% are significantly so. So for a lot of people, it is, it, it's the icing on the cake rather than the Victoria sandwich. And certainly when you get above 2 million, that 25% shrinks to just seven. You know, it, it won't affect all parts of the market in quite the same way. No, that's, that's very clear. And actually, just going back to something that Alex was mentioning, and, and I'd love to get both of your opinions on this. So one of the big drivers over, over the decades for prime central London has undeniably been the safe haven aspect to it, particularly for international buyers. Many of our clients, regardless of whether they're from wherever in the world, whether it's South America, Africa, Asia, typically one of the first things that they want to do once they have effectively generated some wealth in their home country is park some of it away in a in a prime central London property. Now, that has somewhat been shaken by the factors that Lucien has said. If you think about it, had uh, this prototypical Asian, South American, African uh, millionaire purchased a property in 2014, not only has that person seen the value of their property fall by 20% on average over the last five or so, five or six years, but also has seen the value of sterling plummet in that time, effectively eroding 40, 50% of the, of the value that they put in, expecting it to be a safe haven. Is, has the safe haven appeal of London, prime central London now been eroded? Or is, it, is that something that either of you still think uh, remains intact, particularly Lucien from the perspective of, of what you see and, and, and Alex uh, maybe commenting from the perspective of where we're getting, are we still getting a lot of international demand for those kinds of properties? I mean, I, I would say just in terms of the, the value correction which you've had has far outweighed the level or the additional tax liability that has been posed upon it, London. And that's one of the reasons we think it looks like good value. And that combined with the sterling play, you know, suggests to us that that market should be poised for recovery if you can get the international footfall coming into central London again. So there the vaccine is absolutely um, critically important. If you look at how that market has recovered historically, then when you came out of the early 90s downturn, prices doubled in the five years after the market bottomed out. If you looked at the period in the 90s, prices increased by, I think it was 76%. It was 76 or 78 over the period of the next five years. I don't think that scale of growth is going to be replicated this time, but I do think the market will bounce more than the rest of the prime market because of, of where pricing sits at the moment. Why don't I think it will be quite as dramatic? Well, look, I think you've got different types of wealth generation across the globe now, and there are probably a few more places where that will sit. So the growth in wealth that's coming out of the tech sector means that there are probably more alternatives um, to London. London's tax environment is not quite as welcoming as it was in the early 90s or 2007. However, it is not, let's not make no mistake, it is not uncompetitive compared to its peers. You know, it is still a pretty competitive tax environment. So I don't think you'll get the same level of recovery, but you still should get a pretty decent recovery nonetheless. We're forecasting in the next five years that prices in central London will increase by 17.5%. And assuming the vaccination programme goes through and you get the international travel coming through from perhaps March or June, then I think it's probably will be the market that, w that will lead in terms of price growth across all of the prime um, housing markets of the UK next year.
The other thing you have to remember here, of course, is we've talked about central London buyers being discretionary in nature. You know, they're not as needs based as, say, that that established wealth corridor through southwest London. For the same reasons, they are also discretionary sellers. So just because they have seen prices come off since 2014 doesn't mean they're going to lock into those price falls. They are more likely, actually, to sit tight and say, let's wait for the market to right itself. Um, And a lot of the advantages that you have in central London above its peers in terms of the accessibility of that market, the time zone, London as a global financial centre and everything goes with, you know, those education is another one. Um, Those haven't changed. Um, So so I still think you will find that that, that central London will attract international wealth. Um, They might not be uh, quite as punchy. Um, when they're bidding for property in that in that market because of the tax environment, but I still think it will it will uh, attract that global wealth. Alex, from your perspective, have you seen a big um, a big surge in one kind or the other of client? Have has there been a lot of international interest, or are you seeing more domestic driven interest from clients who are wishing to just move to the countryside or perhaps get a, a you know pick up a second property while conditions are favourable? We're seeing both actually, Fahad, um, uh, and it was it was quite surprising when events started to happen in in January, February, March. We we, we really honestly thought that that was it for the market for for quite some time. Uh, nothing was going to happen. Uh, it was going to be dead. It, it, it hasn't worked that way. There was a lull, as I mentioned earlier, but clients have come back right across the various sectors, whether it's domestic or whether it's international, and we haven't seen that for quite some time. There was a lot of positivity, actually. As I said, people were sitting on a lot of money for quite some time and they were eager to spend it. And maybe they perceived that now was the right time to buy, but they were very selective. And I think Lucian made that point. They were very, very selective on where they bought and why they bought property. Whereas in previous years, clients probably thought they had to jump on that bandwagon very, very quickly. They had to buy a lot of gazumping going on. But I think clients now thought that they had the opportunity they wanted to, to put roots down, but they were very, very particular in where they did it. So we've seen domestic buyers and, and international buyers alike, almost probably 50-50, uh, which for us is fantastic because that really is our client base. Uh, and I suppose, you know, the in- other interesting thing about the way the market has played out over the period of the last six to nine months is that normally when you get a surge in, in activity of the type that we've seen, you normally get very strong price appreciation accompanying that. And actually this time around, that hasn't really occurred. Um, yes, you've had some price growth, but but certainly not of the scale that you've seen when you've had this level or anything approaching this level of activity previously. And I think that's just because people are, are acutely aware of the economic backdrop. Um, and so to get the activity that we've seen, you've also seen quite a lot of people have to reduce the price of their property. So to cut their cloth really according to according to how much people are prepared to pay uh, you know like any market overpriced property in this market has continued to stick you know the market hasn't caught up with some people's price expectations um, and of course i think for the seller at the moment you know some of them will also be looking at this window up until the 31st of march and, and in some respects that will that will sort of rein back some of their price expectations i think one of the areas that we've seen that's probably a little bit more negative than others is these big multiple unit uh, apartment blocks that have been going up, possibly south of the river. You, you hear of Battersea and Nine Elms all the time. Uh, massive, massive buildings going up. And we have seen, and even the valuers, some of the valuers we talked to, 
don't even like to value in those areas. What price do you put on a block of 5,000 units, which are generally, a lot of them are sold off plan in, in the Asian and Far Eastern markets? We've seen that slowing down. We've not seen the amount of inquiries from clients who were perhaps buying those types of properties before. It's not happening this time round. So I was interested to see, actually, we'll listen to Lucy to see how that market for him is playing out at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think where you have seen international demand continue is where they have bought off plan for investment purposes. Um, so whereas if you're buying a property for your own use, you really want to see it, touch it and feel it before you, you commit. Um, where you're buying for investment purposes, then you know you can continue to operate. Obviously, investment hasn't been at the scale that we saw prior to the pandemic, um, but it has been that the one part of the international market. And I suppose those people have become, they've been a bit more selective about what they will buy, I think is, is also a, a, a fair point. So, so that new build property that is a, a bit different and offers something different or is best in class, you often hear this is the stuff that will stand up best. You know, you know, I mean, I think you can spend an awful lot of time trying to beat the market. I think central London is looking very good value as things currently stand. I think the decision you make on top of, of where you buy should be di- dictated by essentially what you like. You know, so what so we have seen some markets fare better than others in central London. You know, one of the markets that I like is, is Marlebone because the high street still retains something of a village feel to it. So there's a degree of vibrancy in that market that I think makes that very, very attractive. But you know, trying to select picks that absolutely beat the market is is always going to be a very, very difficult call. But Savills's view for the next five years for prime central London is 17.5%, you said? Yeah, 17.5% 17 growth um, over that period. And the catalyst for that being the return of international demand taking advantage of sterling. I think, you know, this year has presented some opportunities for the domestic buyer to buy in a less crowded marketplace. And certainly if you look at transactional activity in the market above five million pounds in the third quarter you know actually in central london that was relatively robust and a lot of that was underpinned by domestic buying activity um so you know we talk about we talk a lot about global wealth you know we shouldn't forget that there is an awful lot of existing domestic wealth out there as well and the domestic wealth i'm glad you touched on that so areas outside of London, where are you seeing clients buying in the sort of uh, more regional areas? It's those classic relocation markets that we talked about a little bit earlier. It's the best properties in the commuter zone where you've still got accessibility into the capital. But equally, you know, if it's, it's not just about the commuter zone. So uh, you know, a market such as Harrogate up in, in Yorkshire, you know, there you've seen the number of sales above a million pounds since the 1st of June last year, 1st of June to the end of November, 41 sales agreed in that market. That number's gone up to 108 this year. So it is, you know, it's not just about the commuter zone. It's also about that slightly bigger lifestyle relocation. But, but again, I think it, if you've got proximity to one of these relatively affluent, well-serviced towns that has links into a major employment centre, then that, and if you like, the rural fringe around that has been has been pretty attractive in 2020. And Lucien and Alex, just sort of before we go, we've spent a lot of time talking about capital appreciation prospects uh, today. But in terms of income return, obviously being a huge uh, 
part of, of property investing. What kind of yields are, are we seeing in the market, uh, Lucien? And then, and then depending, Alex, on Lucien's answer, how are we you know, possibly thinking about financing uh, some of those things given, given the yields that are available? Okay, I mean, in terms of yield, it really depends what you buy and what your main reason for buying is. I mean, relatively few people would buy, for example, in central London on the basis of yield alone. You know, that is more likely to be about a safe haven store of wealth with everything that that being able to dip in and dip out of central London offers to the buyer in those circumstances. So when when you're talking about yields, you're talking about probably slightly more portfolio purchases, um, often in the regions. Average buy-to-let yield, I would imagine, across the UK is going to be somewhere around the 5% mark. Where you buy depends on the capital growth prospects that you have available. I mean, one of the things that if you look at where we are in the cycle, generally in terms of, of UK house price growth, normally what you find is that London and the southeast performs most strongly in the first half of a housing market cycle. And it's the Midlands and the North that get left behind a little bit in that period and they catch up in the second part. So that means that their yields look more attractive at this point in the cycle um, as things currently stand. But if you're going into that, you need you still need to do so with your eyes open. You still need to do your homework to make sure that you know, you're not just buying off yield, you're also having regard to some of the capital growth prospects of the individual property that you're buying. So still be forensic. You know, I still think you need to be forensic. And we wouldn't generally lend just on the, the backdrop of a, of a rental yield. Uh, we're seeing London uh, around about 3.5% gross yield at the moment on average, uh, which is actually better than it probably was three or four years ago. Uh, as prices have stabilised, yields have gone up, uh, as you would expect. So if you're looking at lending rates being as, probably as low as they ever have been uh, for many, many years, yields at 3.5%, are actually can be quite attractive. But in isolation, we wouldn't just look at uh, rental yields. We're looking at the, the liquidity of the client uh, as a whole, just to ensure that the, that the clients are, are knowing what they're getting into. And, and to be honest with you, if, if we're lending to clients who do this on a regular basis, they really do tend to know the market they're operating in. We see it if, if we're dealing with clients who, who buy. And I, I, I'd agree with Lucy, and we're seeing clients buying more block apartments, not massive blocks, but sort of 10, 15, 20 units where they can obviously get much better returns. Uh, we're seeing those uh, coming through more, but the clients that we see buying, regularly investing, are certainly buying in very particular parts of, say, London. Uh, they know the area, they've researched it, they've probably invested in there for years. Uh, you don't tend to see them sporadically buying properties all over the all over the place. For us, that would be a red flag anyway. But to answer your earlier point, we'd be looking at the client's wealth and liquidity profile uh, in the whole. But is it fair to say that in the current uh, environment, given how low rates are and given the fact that yields have stabilised, that this is a favourable time in the cycle to uh, to to perhaps finance buy to lets uh, or, or or what have you? We we've never been out of the market. Uh, to be honest, and I think that's the one thing that probably sets Claremont Hambrose apart from some of uh, our other peer groups is that we've been very stable. We probably take a more conservative but pragmatic approach. Uh, so we've always have been in the market. So we've lent to clients on very, very similar terms in markets that could be perceived to be sort of stagnant or in a downturn, uh, as we would in a market that's very, very buoyant. So in terms of whether it's buy-to-let or whether it's uh, owner-occupied, we've always been in that market. Uh, and we've honestly never found 
that we've been at risk in doing so because the client base that we're lending to, it's not just one property, one loan. There's a lot more to the wealth profile. So it gives us that comfort that we know what we're doing. And we do know the market uh, pretty well. I mean, we've got industry experts like Lucian, who we would speak to very regularly. And we've got sort of client managers and experts within our risk and legal teams in-house that have been doing this for an awful long time. And that just breeds a lot of confidence as well. I think one of the things that Alex has, has mentioned there, which is you know really important, you know, you have got clearly with the scale of economic disruption that we've had this year and we will have going into next, the security of your income from a single tenant is is one thing. You know, you are undoubtedly looking at diversification of risk, and I think it's that which lends itself to slightly more portfolio purchases. So you can you can just minimise that tenant specific risk. I think you know that's that's clearly one of the things that's driven some of these portfolio buys. Uh, and that's a fair point. We, when furloughing started in the UK, certainly with the, the domestic client base that we have, we actually thought we were going to get a, a lot more requests for assistance uh, and forbearance. But actually, I think we were pleasantly surprised that we didn't because the nature of the client that we were dealing with, they could handle tenant voids. So they weren't specifically reliant on one tenant paying their mortgage which is incredibly important for us because the last thing we need we want to do is be seen to be assisting a client getting into a, a, a bad situation we honestly didn't think the problem well we the problems that occurred weren't representative of our client base lucian alex thank you both it's been an immense pleasure always always fabulous to to spend some time with, with, with both of you gents thanks thank you very much it's been fun Thank you very much for joining us once again today for our latest episode of The Wealth Chat. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwert Hambras Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank CI Limited Guernsey Branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.